This morning's text comes from the Gospel of Mark. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. Um, By the way, it's good to be back. Those of you who don't know, I was uh, in New Zealand, uh, and and I missed you. (laughs) I've got got many stories to share, um, but uh, right now we're going to look at Scripture, the great story. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves at the center of the gospel. This is actually uh, a turning point. We will see uh, next week that this is the turning point that Jesus makes towards Jerusalem and the cross. And we begin to see why at this moment. If you've been following the gospel of Mark, you know that Jesus has been teaching and healing. He's gathered together a group of disciples. He has been training them to be the church when he leaves. Um, He's been confronted by the leaders of Israel. And um, the last few Sundays we've seen that Jesus performs two remarkable miracles. In Israel, among the Jewish people, he feeds 5,000 people with bread that the disciples give him. He then takes the disciples outside of Israel and does exactly the same miracle outside among the Gentiles, showing that his ministry is not just to Israel, but to the broader world. And so we pick up this story right here as Jesus is returning to Israel from the, across the Sea of Galilee uh, in the Gentile region there on the uh, eastern shore. He's returned back to Israel, and once again the Pharisees confront him. So let's have a look at this. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Now, where it says they began to question him and test him, these are actually quite aggressive words. The words in Greek mean uh, argue, dispute, challenge, investigate. This is not a friendly little chat. They are coming to see who Jesus is, but also to challenge him. They want to know who he is and why he is and what are his credentials. Where it says they ask for a sign, this is the, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark talks about Jesus' miracles. This is a new word. And really it means 
a token, a wonder, something that shows who you really are. The Pharisees want Jesus to prove himself. They want to see what his credentials are. They want to see why he has the authority he seems to have. Verse 12. He sighed deeply. Jesus sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Now, he sighed deeply and might come across as he's just kind of shrugging and saying, Well, they don't get it. But the word here is the same word that is used when Jesus is confronted by sick people, where he, you can also translate this word as groaned. Jesus sighs, he groans when he sees the suffering of sick people. When he healed the deaf and dumb man earlier, he sighed. When he was confronted by the pleading leper who needed to be healed, he sighed, he groaned. But here, he sighed deeply. He sighed deeply. This intensifies. This is not just whatever. This is Jesus' deep pity, even misery, at what he's confronted with. The Pharisees. He's expressing profound distress. Something is wrong. We'll look at this a little bit more later, but when you see Jesus groaning and sighing, something important is happening, and we should pay attention to it. We should make sure we understand exactly what the issue is here. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. This is not to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is to the northern shore. This will be the last time that Jesus is in Galilee. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And that of Herod. The yeast of the Pharisees. Clearly, for bread, uh, for Jesus, bread and yeast means something more than just literal bread and yeast. He's talking about the attitude, the teaching, the beliefs, the um, way of life of the Pharisees and Herod. It's not just bread. They just discussed this with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? Disciples are still thinking literally. They're thinking he's talking about the bread that they're carrying with them in the boat, a literal loaf of bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Disciples, we're talking about more than just bread. A hard heart is not about food. A hard heart is about belief, about not understanding truth, about resisting God, God's truth, God's will. Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. 
And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? The answer is seven. By the way, do you remember I gave you homework before I left? I asked you to tell me what the 5,000, the number 5,000 and number 4,000 mean. So after the service, I expect to have an answer. Notice, by the way, that Jesus is very specific. He explicitly reminds the disciples of these numbers. They are important. They mean something. So it's not just foolishness to inquire as to what, what Jesus is talking about here. Commentators, by the way, disagree. But I think he's giving them a glimpse of the future. The 12, just as there were 12 tribes of Israel, there will be 12 disciples that are the foundation of the church. And alongside the 12 disciples, there will be seven deacons who together will form the church. And they will be Christ's mission to the world beyond Israel. Anyway, not all commentators agree with that. He said to them, do you still not understand? And they don't. As I said, this is a turning point. We will see uh, in the next uh, two Sundays that Peter will finally begin to understand when he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. But from this point on, Jesus will be less interested in his outward ministry and his teaching and will focus exclusively or almost exclusively on the disciples and a period of intensive training as he begins to take them to Jerusalem and he begins his journey to the cross. They are missing something here. Do you still not understand? What does Jesus want them to understand? What is this story about bread all about? Well, we have three elements here to make sense of, if we're going to understand this little uh, interaction. Why did Jesus sigh so deeply? Why did he groan? What was the error, the wrong, that made him so upset? What is this yeast that he talks about? The yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And what is the significance of the bread? Remember, he's just performed these incredible miracles, and he is now talking about bread, um, not the literal bread in the boat. So let's start with thinking about yeast. This word, by the way, can be translated leaven or froth or ferment. I grew up in England, and in the 70s, there was a transition in education. Up to that point, boys went to shop and learned to do woodwork and metalwork and use tools, and girls did domestic science. Basically, they learned how to cook. But in the enlightened 70s, they decided that boys should go and learn to cook. So I was one of the first boys that went to cooking classes. And by the way, it's probably one of the most useful things that I've learned. I never got married. I've always had to cook for myself, and it's been a great joy. And so those classes were a real gift. And the first thing that we had to make was bread. And making bread is easy. You get flour and salt and yeast, and you put them in a bowl, and you add a little uh, warm water and a little oil or shortening, and you mix it together, and then you knead it so that all the gluten mixes all the way through the flour, 
and you've got a lump. And if you baked it, you'd have cowboy bread or whatever, it, I think biscuit or something. But if you put it in a warm place, the yeast begins to eat the flour. And as a byproduct, it produces CO2, carbon dioxide, and it produces alcohol. By the way, beer is just the same thing with more water. And the carbon dioxide makes the dough rise, and it expands. It's called proving the dough. And then you take it out, and you knead it again, and you rise it again, and then you bake it. And you've got this beautiful, golden, fresh bread. If you've ever cooked bread, you know there's nothing more beautiful than that smell. But back in the, in the day, back where we're talking about here in uh, Israel, they couldn't just go to the store to buy yeast. You had to depend on wild yeast. You had to depend on uh, your dough being filled with yeast that was just in the wild. And so in the mind of, in the Semitic mind, yeast was a sign of corruption because so often the wild yeast didn't produce good bread. It didn't rise, it tasted sour, obviously it would have had a bad taste. And when you did get good yeast, you saved it. You kept a pinch of the dough and you put that pinch into the next batch and you, you would have a line of healthy bread, good bread, fresh bread. So what are we to make of Jesus' analogy? When he's talking about the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, he's talking about an alien or corrupt or bad yeast that does not produce good bread. In fact, Paul explains this in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. Notice he's talking to Christians. What is he saying? He is saying that the dough, the bread, is our Christians, is the church. And what is the yeast? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leaven with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Unleavened bread is basically the church without Christ. And Christ, the new yeast, the new leaven, is what raises, what fills, what allows unleavened people to rise, to be filled, to grow, to become fresh and wholesome, filled with the Spirit. It is, by the way, the reason that we use unleavened bread of the Lord's Supper. By itself, unleavened, it is not filled with God's Spirit. But when we receive it in faith, it is filled with His Spirit. It is leavened, it is raised with His Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the true yeast, the true leaven that will raise bread to what it's meant to be. So what is the great wrong, the great error 
of the Pharisees. Basically, they want to control the bread, the bread-making process. They come to Jesus, and they want him to perform, show us a sign. They want Jesus and God to submit to their control, to their schedule, to their requirements. They are trying to turn God through Christ into an object, something that obeys their will on their own terms, something that they can control. By the way, I experienced this. When I was at seminary, it was always striking to me that there was a certain kind of person there who was academic. And they were primarily there to encounter the idea of God. And they loved different theories about who God might be. God was this kind of idea, this object. Wow, that's an interesting way to look at God. And how about this way of looking at God? And how about this way of looking at God? And, that's, and any new theory was desirable. God was an object of knowledge, not a subject, not a person, a personal relationship, not somebody to get to know, not someone you had to have a dialogue with, had to respond to, had to take on their own terms. It's the difference between having a personal relationship with someone where you take a risk and you begin to interact with them and you have to deal with who they really are go out on dates to get to know them, begin to interact with their personality, or hiring a private investigator to know someone, finding out the details about them. One is about intimacy, sharing, self-revelation, letting down barriers, risky. The other is about control, about power, about keeping at a distance so that you can decide the terms of the relationship. That's what the Pharisees want. It's actually what all religious people want. Show me the rules. Show me what I have to do to get to know you. And I'll follow the rules rather than you. I will deal with the rituals, the habits, the patterns, the law, rather than you and have a relationship with you. But that's not who Jesus is. What he is so upset about why he groans is here he is right in front of them offered as a relationship freely available and yet they don't want to deal with him they want to try to control him you know in in the gospel of of John Jesus is called the the Logos that's where we get our word dialogue from Jesus is a dialogue, a relationship, an invitation to be in relationship with God. Not a set of rules, not a philosophy, not a pattern or habit. A relationship of intimacy and love. In fact, you have to say more than that. We sang earlier about grace. Jesus reveals that God wants a relationship with us without rules. He offers himself completely, freely, graciously, and invites us to take him on those terms. 
I thought about this, by the way, on my trip. Um, I went to different churches while I was in New Zealand. Every Sunday, I went to a different church. And um, I was in Auckland at this particular church. In fact, I've got that bulletin here, City Church. Lovely church, great group of people. City Presbyterian Church, this is their bulletin. And I was thinking, Tony, what on earth are you doing here? You know, Auckland is a fabulous city. It was a beautiful day. It's the summer there. Auckland is called the City of Sales. It's surrounded by water. The Round the World race was just arriving that week. The, the harbors were filled with these beautiful boats. What am I doing in this little room with people I don't know? Nobody knows me. Nobody cares. Nobody's watching. I have nothing to prove. What on earth am I doing here? And then we sang this song. We, in fact, we began our service with it. Come now, thou fount of every blessing. And they, these words just... I actually wept during the worship service because of these words. It just nailed me because these words understood why I was there, told me why I was there. So this is, this is the last stanza. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Grace. Free gift. I was completely free on the other side of the world. Nobody knew me. I could do anything I want. And yet in freedom, in response to grace, I was choosing to worship. Let that grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. I'm an anarchist by nature. My whole life I've rebelled against rules, constraints, the control of others. And yet there I was, completely free, no compulsion, and there was nowhere else that I would choose or rather be than worshiping God. It is actually astonishing to me that that's true. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. My whole life I've been a wanderer, uh, a nomad, looking to explore, looking to meet new things and new experiences. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts of love. Goodness, all the nonsense that the world speaks about following your bliss, following your heart, following your passions. One thing that I've learned about myself is that I have an unruly heart. It is filled with conflicted desires and unwholesome passions. I would not trust my own heart as far as I could throw it against a stiff breeze. It is not a good guide to life. I would much rather, and I have learned, it is much better that my heart belongs to God. You know, there's a second thing I learned on this trip. Those of you who know me know I've been bitching more and more about getting old. There is nothing good about getting old, as far as I'm aware. Um, and I've, I've still can't find, well, I've learned something. I was at one of these churches on the South Island, and we were praying, and one of the older guys prayed, thank you, Lord, for the gift of getting old. And I thought, what? What is he talking about? And then he said, because I now know how you've walked with me, how you've been there. 
And he's right. It is the only thing that I've ever found out that's good about getting old, that you can look back and you can remember and see the places that God was there for you, the, God, the way that he has guided you, the way that despite yourself he has brought you to where you are, evidence that he really does love you, evidence that his grace has been at work in your life, in my life. And it's the only thing that could rule my unruly heart. I think that's the essence of the gospel. Jesus came and freely offers himself. And when you hear the gospel, the fact that he was willing to die, the fact that he was willing to pay whatever the price to draw us to himself, it melts your heart. An old, hardened, unruly, anarchic heart like mine can be melted by the grace of God. And if that's possible for me, it's possible for anybody. And when you hear it, when that gospel really has been shared with you, it is irresistible. That's why Jesus was upset. Because he knew what he was and who he was and what he was about to do. And they couldn't see it. I hope you can see it. I hope you can experience that melting, gracious love that is the only thing that is worth living for. It's the reason that we're here right now. Jesus opens up a relationship with our Creator. He invites us in, and he proves that our Creator loves us, seeks our best, wants us to thrive and flourish. And he does. Let's pray.